passed out. Help yourself to breakfast. Thank you, Carrie, this morning with the spread. Looks delicious. Hope people save me a little bit. All right, John 12. Um, last week we began John 12 uh, with the first day of Passion Week. It began with the scene of um, Mary anointing Christ with the, with the ointment. Uh, it took place on a Sabbath. John tells us it was six days before Passover. And Passover is the day is the day on which Jesus is crucified. So that was last week. This week we come to the next day in Passion Week, which is a Sunday. And it's the story, very familiar story, of the triumphal entry. Um, this story is actually recorded in all four Gospels. Uh, it's not actually very common for something to be recorded in all four Gospels. And this is, it tells us it's quite significant. Um, but if you're like me, um, you, you may have wondered just what makes the triumphal entry so significant. I know it is, heard it many times. Um, there's also been a level of just perplexity, uh, confusion. What, why does Jesus do what he does in this story? Why does he ride on a donkey? Um, why are the crowds so excited? Why does Jesus, um, who has um, refused to be caught up in the enthusiasm of the crowd, why does he seem to join them here? Um, why do the disciples not understand what's going on here until after the resurrection? So there's a lot of perplexity with, with this passage. Um, but I hope that this morning, as we look into it, um, it'll become clear to you, and you'll, you'll just see some of the glories that are in it, and uh, it is, uh, is very full, uh, for sure. Um, so, I've entitled this, this section here, John, chapter 12, verses 12 through 19, The Triumphant King, Peaceful Savior, and Worldwide Ruler. Three scenes which clarify the nature of Jesus so let me uh, let's dive in here. Look at the first, the first scene. Jesus is welcomed as the promised Messiah. The scene begins with these crowds pouring out of Jerusalem to welcome Jesus in as Messiah. Um, I've included verses 17 to 18 up there uh, because John later in this passage is going to fill in some more background. Um, so we're going to look at that under this, under this point. The first thing John tells us is the, the motivation of the crowd for going out and meeting Jesus. So look at verse 12. It says, The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Look down in verse 17 here. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. Now let me point something out here to you. In verses 17 to 18, we get two crowds. You see that? There are two crowds here in verses 17 to 18. The first crowd is in verse 17. It says, The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb. So these are probably Jerusalemites, people from Jerusalem. They were present in chapter 11. They see the sign that Christ had performed. They were with him. Um, chapter 11 said many of them came away believing in Jesus as a result of the sign. 
Um, back up in verse 9 of this chapter, it's probably the same crowd. The large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus had come back to Bethany, and they go and see him at this dinner, uh, and they don't just want to see him, they want to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. Um, so this is the first crowd. It's probably Jerusalemites, people familiar with Jesus, saw the sign, eyewitnesses. And it says that they were continuing to bear witness, bear witness about the sign, about what Jesus has done, and what it testifies to him. But who were they bearing witness to? Well, that's verse 18. That's the second crowd. Um, it says the reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they heard. Well, who did they hear it from? Well, they heard it from the other crowd in verse 17. Does make sense? They heard that he had done this sign. So they hadn't seen the sign. They heard it, and that's why they go out. So look back at verse 12 now. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast. All right, so these are people pouring into Jerusalem for the feast of Passover. There would have been thousands upon thousands and thousands of people, all from the Roman world, all from Israel, coming up to this feast. Um, these are not people from Jerusalem. They hear that Jesus has done this sign, and they hear that Jesus is coming and that is why they go out to meet him. Um, so John tells us the first crowd testifies about his sign to those coming to the feast. And the second crowd responds to this report with an eager reception of Jesus. Um, and John tells us that one of the primary reasons people went out from Jerusalem was because they heard about this sign that Jesus had done. But why? What, what is the connection? Why did they respond to this sign by going out to meet Jesus? Um, it's because of what the sign testified about his person. They concluded he was the Messiah. Now, what took place one year before this event? Do you remember in John, as we've been working through? The previous Passover, where was it? <clears throat> It was back in chapter 6, right? What happened in chapter 6? Jesus feeds the 5,000, which is really 20,000 people, um, with five loaves, two fishes. It was near Passover. Um, and he performs this sign, and the crowd responds with eagerness, ready to force him to be their messianic leader, to lead a revolution against Rome. And at that point, what did Jesus do? He... He fled from them. He retreated. He had not come to be that kind of Messiah. Um, and the crowd here responds in the same way. They see this sign, or they hear about this sign, and conclude, he is Messiah. And they respond by going after him in the same, in the same way, just like they did in chapter 6. Um, so the crowd is motivated to come welcome Jesus because of the sign. And now in, in verse 13, John tells us about the crowd's messianic acclamation. Of Jesus. This verse tells us that these pilgrims, when they heard the sign um, and hearing that Jesus comes, they go out, they leave Jerusalem to welcome Jesus in as, as Messiah. So look what it says, verse 13. It says, So they took palm branches, branches of palm trees, and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So there's three things I just want to point out quickly in this verse that make it clear that what they're doing is declaring Jesus to be Messiah, okay? And also the kind of Messiah they want him to be. 
The first thing I want to point out is that this is happening at Passover. Again, just like chapter 6 happened around Passover. Um, the Feast of Passover, just like the Feast of Booths, just like Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication, they look back to God's deliverance of Israel in the past, but they also look forward to the promise and the expectation that one day he would once and for all deliver his people, the promise of a Messiah who would come and bring salvation. Um, and so Passover is a time of great nationalistic zeal. It's a time where they're looking forward to the fulfillment of all these promises, the freedom and the liberation of Jerusalem and Israel. Um, so that's one of the reasons why they're going out such excitement. It's Passover. It's time. This is what we are celebrating. The other reason is their messianic accolades were symbolized in the palm branches. Look what it says. It says they took branches of palm trees. John is the only gospel to mention that they took palm branches. The other gospels say they, they, they took branches off of trees, which probably were not palm branches. Um, they got these from somewhere else. But why the palms? Why were the palms significant? Um, at this point in Israel's history, the palm leaf had already become a symbol for the nation. It was a symbol for the nationalism of, of Israel. And you can see that in a number of ways um, in, in history. Um, they had also been a, um, a symbol of, of victory and of, of celebration. So you look back in the books of Maccabees, 1st Maccabees, 2nd Maccabees, that talked about the deliverance of Israel, the intertestamental period, the rededication of the temple, all of these things, they celebrate with palm branches. Um, they become a, a symbol for victory and, and triumph. We get a similar picture in Revelation 7-9. After this I looked, a great multitude Look down at, at the bottom. They're standing before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands. It's a symbol of victory and a symbol of triumph and a symbol of the nationalism of, of Israel. So that's why they use them. The crowd comes out and they welcome Jesus as the victorious, triumphant Messiah who would conquer Israel's enemies and establish the kingdom. Number three... Their messianic desires were expressed through Psalm 118. Look what they say. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Um, it's a quotation from a verse in Psalm 118. Um, the word Hosanna comes from Aramaic. It literally means save now or give salvation now. is a plea to the Lord to deliver his people. And without going into too much detail, Psalm 18 was a celebration of the victories, the triumphs of the Davidic king who comes back after a victory. They're celebrated and welcomed back in. He's succeeded by the strength of the Lord. And the psalm concludes with this verse, which looks forward to another David who would come and succeed in a similar manner. It says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They look forward to another one who would come just like that, who would be the Messiah. And if there's any doubt who they're talking about, look what the crowd says at the very end. They say, even the king of Israel. That's not from Psalm 118. They stick that at the end as an identifier to say, this is who we're talking about, the Messiah, the king of Israel. It's a messianic title. 
So when added all together, we get this picture of the enthusiastic crowd who's identified Jesus as Messiah because of the sign, and they went out to welcome him into Jerusalem as their hoped-for messianic deliverer who would overthrow Rome um, at that moment. And this fervor and excitement, while it's going on, Jesus responds. And the way he responds is quite a bit different than how he's responded at any point up to this point here. And that brings us to verses 14 to 16 now. Um, Jesus is presented as the triumphant king. So the crowd is celebrating. They're coming out to welcome him. And here he accepts their accolades. Um, he accepts it. He receives it. Listen to Leon Morris, what he says. Doubtless many of them had felt for some time that Jesus' teaching and miracles showed him to be the Messiah. But until now, he would not make the claim. He would never set himself up as king. He didn't want to be that kind of revolutionary leader. When on this occasion, he did not reject their acclamation, their enthusiasm knew no bounds. He was doing, they thought, what they always had wanted him to do. So the crowd thinks Jesus is finally getting on with the, the program, that he's finally getting it. And Jesus agrees, you're right, I am Messiah. He's going to present himself as the triumphant king, but he's also going to do it in a way that's very significant about the nature of his kingship and very different from anything the Jews were expecting. So look at verses 14 to 15 here. Jesus accepts this identification as Messiah in a purposeful manner. Look at verse 14. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. He finds a young donkey. Um, John does not give us all the details the other gospels do. Remember that story? Jesus sends the disciples in, and they have to go find it. The person asks them, Hey, what are you doing with the donkey? John doesn't give us any of that. All he says is Jesus finds a donkey and sits on it. Um, that's the only thing Jesus does in this story. It's the only action. He sits on the donkey. And then for the rest of the time, John's going to explain why that is so significant to us. He wants us to zero in on the significance of this donkey and how it relates to what was written in the Old Testament. John says, just as it is written. And he goes on to give a quotation it's going to give the prophetic background to make sense. What is Jesus doing here? Jesus has intentionally put himself in line with biblical prophecy to fulfill it. But what does it mean? Why is this so significant? This is a quotation here, verse 15, from the bulk of it comes from Zechariah 9 9. And I would like to invite you to turn with me there. Zechariah 9 9. know if you've read through Zechariah recently. It's not an easy book. It is an incredible book, though, full of expectations of Messiah that he comes. <clears throat> Zechariah. Next to last book, Malachi is the last. Zechariah, Malachi. Zechariah 9.9. What is this passage promising? And how does Jesus 
fulfill it. So look at Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Daughter of Zion almost always refers to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, usually those under oppression and domination from the enemy, promise that one day they'll be rescued by the Deliverer, by Messiah. Why should they rejoice? Well, because, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of the donkey. So in the context here of Zechariah 9, 9, what is the significance of the donkey? Um, donkeys for the people of the ancient world meant something quite different than they mean to, to us. Um, I don't know what you think of when you think of a donkey, but probably not um, a great animal, probably a lowly animal. Um, let me show you a couple things that I think, though, is being symbolized here in Zechariah. The donkey signified honor and royalty. It was a valuable animal. Um, it was often the sign and symbol of wealth. If you had a donkey, you were considered wealthy, and a person's wealth was enumerated by how many donkeys he had. Um, it was a very important animal. It was used for carrying cargo, carrying people, pulling a plow. But donkeys were also used sometimes in the Old Testament for people of importance. Even royalty would sometimes ride on a donkey. Listen to one commentator on Zechariah, how he put it. He said the connection between the donkey or mule and leadership, especially royal leadership, suggests that riding on a donkey mule is a traditional respectful symbol. Much as the horse-drawn Landau carriage functions today for the British royal family. Um, it's probably not how we would immediately think of a donkey. Um, and this symbol has very ancient roots. Listen to Genesis 49. This is the prophecy about Judah given by Jacob to his sons. He says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. This is royalty imagery here. He's washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. That's warfare language. He's come and his, his garments are drenched in, in blood. He's come back and succeeded as a, as a king. And uh, it's royalty, it's success, prosperity as this ruler. So all this to say, Zechariah 9, this king riding on a donkey first symbolized honor and respect. The donkey here also signified the peaceful rule of Messiah. Look at verse 9 again. Behold, your king is coming, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of the donkey. Verse calls on Jerusalem to rejoice because the promised king is coming to set up his rule in Jerusalem. But look at what happens next. Verse 10. I, this is Yahweh God speaking, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off, all these offensive weapons of war. And he, the king, shall speak peace to the nations and his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. In other words, this prophecy here is looking forward to a king who will establish his rule 
and cause his kingdom to dominate not through warfare. He does not come on a war horse to set up his kingdom. He comes on a peaceful animal of a donkey. Yahweh has installed this king as his representative. Yahweh is the one that destroys all of his enemies. This is a humble king reliant on Yahweh alone for victory. And he comes in not as a conquering warrior, but as a peaceful ruler. He's come to establish his kingdom, not through warfare. So is it beginning to make sense to you why Jesus chose the donkey in John 12? The crowd is enthusiastically proclaiming him to be the national deliverer. And Jesus doesn't ride in on a war horse. He rides in on a donkey. He's presenting himself to be Messiah, that's for sure, but not the kind the Jews were expecting. Andres Kostenberger said, Jesus' choice of a donkey invokes prophetic imagery of a king coming in peace, which contrasts sharply with notions of a political warrior messiah. He chooses a donkey to declare that he is indeed Messiah, but not a conquering warrior, but a king who's come to receive a kingdom from his father. And he accepts this identification from the crowd because his hour has come, but he accepts it in this way to show that he's a different kind of Messiah. Before we go on, I do want to say, though, that the Jews were not entirely wrong. There are certainly Old Testament passages which picture the coming Messiah as a warrior king who will destroy his enemies. I mean, do you know Psalm 2? He will dash the nations to pieces with a rod of iron as one does to potter's vessels. He is a warrior. But there's also passages that present him in this way. Zechariah 9 and Isaiah 53 and one of, of peace and not of war. And what was not entirely clear in the Old Testament is made clear to us in the New that there would be two comings of Messiah. And the astonishing thing is the first time he comes, he does not come as a warrior to destroy his enemies, but as a savior to save his enemies. Hold your hand in Zechariah. We're going to come back here. Go back to John. Go to John 3.16. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. John begins with this so. God so loved the world. There's astonishment here. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. That's what you would expect to come from Messiah. Condemn the world. Judge the world who's at enmity with God. But he sent his son into the world in order that the world might be saved through him. That is the astonishing thing of the first coming of Christ. That's why he came in on a donkey. One day he is coming as a warrior Messiah. One day he will come in on a war horse, Revelation 19. On a white horse to establish his rule and crush all of his enemies underfoot. But first, he came as a humble king to establish his kingdom another way through the sacrifice of himself on the cross. And he did it in the Zechariah 9-9 way in order to show that he's going to triumph in glory as the promised king, not through warfare, but through his 
elsewhere. And that brings us to, to verse 16. So go back to chapter 12. Keep your hand in, in Zechariah. We'll be coming back there. Chapter 12, verse, verse 16. The disciples understand the significance of Jesus' actions only after the cross and resurrection. Look at verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. He says they didn't understand these things. Well, what are these things? I think it's both everything that was written about him in Zechariah 9.9. They didn't, they didn't make the connection to Zechariah 9.9 in this moment. They didn't even think about that. And they didn't understand how it related to what the crowd is hailing as Jesus as Messiah. Um, I think John is saying they did not understand the significance about what Jesus was declaring about himself in response to the crowd. It was only after Jesus was glorified. Well, how is Jesus glorified in John? He said it over and over. How is he glorified? Through the what? Through the cross, through the resurrection, not as a warring king, through the cross. And only after the cross, when his glory is maximally revealed, when he enters his glory with the Father, through suffering, through rejection, as the conquering Messiah, do the disciples make the connection, connect all the dots. This happens over and over in John. They don't get it until after the cross work is done. Finally, they understand the significance, and that's what John wants us to know here. How does Jesus' cross work relate to the fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9? Listen to Leon Morris here again. He says, what John appears to be saying is that the disciples did not understand the real significance of these events. They did not comprehend the nature of Jesus' kingship. Though they may well have thought of him in some sense as the messianic king, John is not affirming that the multitude correctly evaluated the person of the Lord. They thought of him as a king in a wrong sense. After the glorification, the disciples thought of him as a king in a right sense. Again, Herman Ritterboss says, No one in Jerusalem but Jesus understood that he entered Jerusalem sitting on a donkey to receive that kingship and as son of man to be lifted up on the cross. For that reason, the story of the entry, particularly in John Preston's John's presentation of it is the story of Jesus' hidden glory, the deep meaning of which only the progress of the events of salvation would disclose. In other words, only through the accomplishment of the cross and the resurrection would the deep significance of what Jesus is doing here be disclosed. So now your question is, well, Michael, what is the significance? What's the connection? How does Jesus' glorification in the cross give insight Zechariah 9.9. We'll go back to Zechariah 9.9. Nine. Nine, nine. I'll give you a few. Three things. Number one. I've already said this, but I'll say it again. It was his glorification in the cross which established him as a Zechariah 9.9 kind of king. When the disciples finally understood the resurrection, they remembered the entry of Jesus on the donkey. And they understood it rightly as declaring that Jesus has come as God's promised king, not through warfare, but in humble dependence on his Father. The cross was the means through which he entered his glory as the triumphant king. The disciples got that after the cross. Number two, 
It was his glorification in the cross which led to the fulfillment of the promises of Zechariah 9. So in the New Testament, when it quotes the Old Testament, it's often wanting you to think about the entire context of that verse it's quoting. Right? So we want to look at not just Zechariah 9.9, but the verses around it. What is this passage promising this king will, will do and, and accomplish? And let me show you three things under, under this point. This king, through the cross, Christ's kingdom, will be established in peace, not through warfare. Look at Zechariah 9.10 again. Yahweh says, I'll cut off chariot and war horse and, and bow. I'll make these things unnecessary in the rule of Messiah. You see, just as we've learned throughout the Gospel of John, our greatest problem is not Rome. It's not any superpower. It's not sickness. It's not hunger. It's not the chaos going on between Russia and Ukraine, although these are awful, devastating things. It is our own sin. It's our own sin nature. Our own identity as children of the devil, the looming wrath of God over our, our heads. And Christ has come to deal with the greatest enemy, our enemy, and also his enemy, the world. And he's come the first time not to conquer it as a warrior, but to die as a substitute sacrifice, as the peaceful king who would establish his rule in this way, through peace, through his cross. It's how Christ conquered. And it's only when understood through the cross that we can understand what Jesus was doing here, what he was proclaiming about himself. Number two, through the cross, Christ's rule will extend to the ends of the earth. Look again at verse 10 of chapter 9 of Zechariah. He shall speak peace to the nations, and his rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is the picture of the fulfillment of what was expected for the Davidic king. He would have world wide domination. His kingdom would spread globally. And that is what is pictured here through the rule of Messiah who enters not as a conquering warrior but on a donkey. It's the anticipation of the extent of his rule. And through the work on the cross, Jesus' rule and reign will extend to the ends of the earth. That's what he's saying. Look what it says. He will speak peace. That He, he, he extends peace to the nations, the Gentiles, that's you and me, not judgment. And it will be worldwide in its, in its scope. Do you know in John 12, what is the very next story? What happens next? After the triumphal entry, who comes to find Jesus? Some what? Some Greeks. Some Greeks. Non-Jews. It's exactly what this passage is saying. Through the cross work of Christ, his rule is going to spread globally. And it has, and it is, as people repent and come to trust Christ as Savior, his rule is from sea to sea. That is how Christ conquers. That's how he triumphs. That's why he is the triumphal king. Number three, through the cross of Christ, Christ's blood would seal the salvation of God's people. Look at verse 11 of Zechariah. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant, looking back to the Mosaic Covenant, but also forward to the New Covenant. I'll set your prisoners free from waterless, the waterless pit. John tells us that 
We're prisoners. The Jews are prisoners. The Gentiles are prisoners to sin. It will be through the blood of Christ that he will liberate his people, set them free, and bring them into the kingdom. So all these points illustrate the fact that his glorification in the cross leads to the fulfillment of Zechariah 9. One more now. The disciples only get it after the cross. Why? Because it was in the glorification in the cross which aligned him to the other messianic expectations in Zechariah. Zechariah, the second half of the book, repeatedly looks forward to this promised king. Jesus sets himself up as the chapter 9 kind who's coming in. That also means he's all the other ones. Look, look ahead at a couple of these really quickly. He's the rejected shepherd as well with Zechariah 11, verse 8. He becomes impatient. They detest him. And then in verse 12, um, they weigh out his wages, 30 pieces of silver. Looking forward to what would happen to Christ. He's the one who's pierced in chapter 12, verse 10. He's the good shepherd against whom the God unleashes the sword of his judgment in chapter 13, verse 7. In other words, after the resurrection, the disciples have come to recognize Jesus as the one who fulfilled all of these messianic expectations in Zechariah. And through his cross, he's accomplished the work that the people desperately need. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. And on that day, there will be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. That's what he does. This king, through his cross, accomplished that. That's how he has triumphed. And that's how he fulfills Zechariah. Very quickly, before we go back to John and finish the lesson, any questions or comments on, on that? You understand the connections? It's through the cross, through his glory that he entered in the cross, it finally made sense what he was declaring about himself, how he fulfilled Zechariah 9 and the rest of Zechariah. Conquering king through the cross, not as a warrior. Let's go back to chapter 12 of John. We'll Close out with this and then give you a couple implications to go. Verse 19, Jesus' relationship with the world is unintentionally proclaimed. His identity and his relationship with the world is proclaimed. Look at verse 19. Now. After all of this, the crowd is hailing him. He accepts it. He rides in on a donkey. Verse 19, the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Pharisees simply mean that multitudes are flocking to Jesus. The world was present at Passover. People from all over the Roman world were coming in. And they're flocking to him, calling him Messiah. Pharisees say, say you're gaining nothing. Um, all their attempts so far to stop this is, are, are failing. Um, they can't seem to control the crowds, can't control Jesus, and they say this. But for readers of John, we know that the world means something a little bit more, right? We pick up that there's some pretty deep levels of irony and double meaning going on in this. What is the world in John? Well, we said over and over, the world represents what? A system 
that is in what? Rebellion to its maker. The world. It's a sin-filled world against its maker. And the world also represents the scope of humanity, not just Jews only, but also Gentiles. And we get both of those ideas here and then the rest of chapter 12 of Packing. So let me show you a couple. Number one, the world represents the system against God, and they are those who fail to receive Christ rightly. You see, Jesus is eagerly welcomed here by the crowd, but by the end of the chapter, we're going to see that they fail to receive him rightly. Mass rejection again ends this chapter. He was not the kind of Messiah they wanted him to be. Dia Carson says, by the end of the chapter, John will insist that the overwhelming reaction to Jesus was unbelief. So that here is elsewhere the evangelist does not accord a very high place to the crowd's positive response to Jesus. And as this chapter will end, we'll end on an ominous note that most of these people fail to receive Jesus rightly. They're the world. Enslaved to sin, loving themselves, their earthly mindedness, and they reject Christ. The world has gone after him. But the world also represents the universal scope of Christ's conquering work. Just like Zechariah promised, it would be from sea to sea. He'd come to conquer the world. Through his cross, Jesus would overcome the world and extend the scope of his reign to the ends of the earth. Listen again to D.A. Carson. The crowd that acclaims Jesus as the king of Israel anticipates the broader sweep of humanity that will enjoy Jesus' saving reign. And as the plots of the Pharisees and their colleagues were not proving very effective in reducing Jesus' popularity, so the later attempts to stem the rising tide of Christianity proved exasperating. The world has gone after him. Jesus has conquered as the triumphant king, extending his reign to the ends of the earth through his cross and salvation of the world. And that is what John is preparing us for. And we're going to see both of these um, later in chapter 12 as Greeks come to seek Jesus and Jesus promises through his cross he's going to draw all kinds of people the world to himself. Um, any questions, comments? I've got three implications I want to leave you with as we go from here. Bobby, yes. I just had a question about um, you kind of see the theme of misunderstanding of the disciples throughout John yep. over and over and over. And I, I guess I had a question in my mind about is, is Pentecost really the reason why they were able to go back mm -hmm. and, and the spirit why they were able to go back and basically search the scriptures and see what, what the fulfillment meant? It's like, oh, there's where Jesus fulfilled Zechariah or whatever. Um, and, what was the yeah, I would say it's in part, uh, but it happens before it. So you think of the road to Emmaus, where Jesus is talking with these disciples. They're confused, and what does he do? He takes them back to the prophets, the law and the prophets, showing them that the Messiah must be rejected, must suffer to enter into his glory. Um, so it happens before Pentecost, and they get it there, finally, when he's resurrected. So I'd say it's when they came to the realization of what he accomplished in his work, what the cross and resurrection was all about that they made the connection back. It was also in the gift of the Holy Spirit, which came to empower them at Pentecost, but I think it came before then as well. And the, the Holy Spirit did what? It, it brought to remembrance, Jesus said in John 14, all that I've spoken to you, 
I'm so is through the gift of the Spirit as well. But yeah, those, right. those two things. Good question. Questions, comments? Comments? Yeah. Uh, so it's kind of a big question, but the Jews have Zechariah, and they have the, the word that talks about the coming Messiah mm-hmm. being the way we're talking about coming as a humble king. You know, why is the crowd only seeing him as their militaristic messiah? Yep. You know, what, what's, what's going on there? So two things. I'd say number one, uh, what we said way back in chapter 6, just the earthly-mindedness. That's all they care about. They don't recognize their spiritual condition. They don't recognize their spiritual need. We're Jews. Kingdom's automatically ours. We just need a liberator to destroy our enemies. Um, so there's certainly that, that, that spiritual blindness that came over them because of their condition. That's all they wanted was this kind of a messiah. Um, the other is because of uh, it's clear in the Old Testament um, but how do you connect those dots uh, of those two comings um, yeah I think Jesus brings it to, to clarity there will certainly be two comings of Messiah who will certainly come in this way Isaiah 53 is crystal clear what he would accomplish um, most of the Jews were just not mindful of it um, so it's through Christ that came clear you know? so I don't think it's a mystery in a sense that the Old Testament didn't tell us. Again, Jesus takes them back in Luke 24 and shows them that they should have gotten these things. Are you slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have said, that the Messiah must be cut off, rejected, to enter into his glory? So they should have gotten it. And Jesus said it was because they were slow of heart and uh, slow to believe all that the prophets had written. Make sense? Does that help? Question. Questions, comments? Yes? Yeah, I, I went back to read Luke 24, and it says later when Jesus appeared to the disciples, he opened their eyes. Yeah. I was just looking at it. Um, yeah, I just lost the, the, the verse. There. Oh, uh, 24, 45. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, and like, isn't there some doctrine of like the the partial hardening of Israel based off of Romans nine? Like this was also God's place. Yep, it's good. It goes all through the gospel, right? a form of judgment. And his people, even the disciples, were partially hardened um, to understand the fullness of what Christ would accomplish. So yeah, you have to have the gracious work of Christ to open eyes and to give understanding. So, sorry. Amen. Okay, let me leave you. It's time's up. Let me give you three things. Number one, if you're a believer, a Gentile, you're experiencing this promise, the fulfillment of it, the global reign of Christ. Um, and it will come in fulfillment, finally, ultimately, um, in his return where he sets up his earthly kingdom. Number two, um, he's triumphed and conquered in the cross, and his kingdom and mission is unstoppable. Um, she give you confidence and boldness as you live your lives. His kingdom can't fail. Number three, it has implications on us as his followers. We conquer in the same way. We don't conquer through military might. We don't conquer by killing. We conquer by being killed. If it comes to it, as we're going to see in the very next passage in chapter 12, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And Jesus calls his disciples to walk in the same way. Just as he triumphed, so we triumph by not loving our lives until the point of death. That's how Revelation says it. Christ is our model.
and our King and our Savior. Let me pray. Love you, Father. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Christ, triumphant, glorious King. As he we praise you, I thank you that his mission cannot be stopped. It is spreading its rule from sea to sea, and we long for his return as the warrior king on the white horse to set up his kingdom and rule the nations. And we as his precious redeemed people, all by grace, thank you for your mercy and your love. Give you praise and ask that you would bless us the rest of this day in Jesus' name. Amen.